All right, let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4 this evening. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, I'm going to be preaching to you the first five verses of this chapter on the topic of the judgment of a minister. The judgment of a minister. Let me read these verses once again in your hearing. 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, beginning at verse number 1. These are the words of God. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet am I not hereby justified? But he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. The clear tone of this passage is one of judgment and evaluation. Words like account, require, must, judge, which is used four times in these five verses, judgment, justified, and make manifest, all emphasize the theme of this text. If there is a future judgment, there must be a present standard which will serve as the rubric for this coming evaluation. There must also be a judge who shall wield the eschatological gavel and reign as sovereign in this universally supreme court. And there must also be those who come under judgment, those who are tried and examined and ultimately declared innocent or guilty. The concept of divine judgment, though immensely unpopular in society, is one of the most resounding and prominent truths presented in the Word of God. There is a judge, and it is God Himself, the eternal, sovereign, righteous, holy, creator of the cosmos. He is the one, and He is the only one, who presides as supreme judge. There are also defendants, namely everyone who has ever and will ever live upon the earth. There's also a rubric or a fixed and established standard by which the judge shall execute his judgment. And this is his immutable and inspired word. And lastly, there is a set and appointed day of judgment. And this day was predestined and determined by the eternal counsels of God. This day was settled in heaven. This day is etched in stone. Martin Luther said there is only two days that matter to God, and that is this day and that day. This day cannot be altered. This day cannot be amended. This day cannot be rescheduled. And this day cannot be escaped. And for some of us, the day of judgment will be very different than it is for others. On judgment day, believers will experience something vastly different than will unbelievers. And this distinction is so severe that the Bible does not even often speak about the judgment of believers and the judgment of unbelievers in the same context. Most passages dealing with judgment 
especially the final judgment, are usually about one or the other. And the verses that we are considering this evening are an example of this dichotomy. The primary focus of this text is not the judgment that will be experienced by unbelievers, but the judgment that will be experienced by believers. But this text, more so than any other judgment passage in the Bible, is especially unique in that it reaches to an even higher level of specificity. It narrows down its focus to the particular judgment that will be faced by gospel ministers. And this, of course, is in context with the broader scope of this passage as Paul has been laboring this point, laboring the importance of the church, laboring the importance of spiritual leaders in the program of God, in God's economy of grace. And so now in chapter 4, he's going to talk to us about the judgment that will be faced by those who are called of God to minister the gospel. There is coming a day on which Christian ministers of the gospel will be tried not only for how they live their lives, but also how they conducted their ministries. Every sermon they ever preached, every lesson they ever taught, all the counsel they ever gave, how they administered the ordinances of the church, how they led their assembly, their theology, their zeal, their practice, their study, their work ethic, their devotion, will all be examined by God on this day of judgment. That is why James tells us, be not many masters among you, because Christian ministers shall be held to an even higher level of examination and trial on that day. And I know that there are some of you here this evening who aspire some role of ministry in the church. Some of you seek the eldership. Some of you seek the diaconate, to be a deacon. Some desire to be teachers. Some desire to be counselors. Several of you right now are engaged in theological and ministerial studies. And you would do well to pay very close attention to the teachings of this passage. But others of you who perhaps have no desire for the gospel ministry in, in an official capacity, well, you've already decided that this sermon is not for you. You've decided, I'll just wait until we get to the next section in 1 Corinthians, because obviously this sermon does not apply to me, and it's not eminently important to my life. Well, let me urge you not to make such a foolish mistake. Though you may not ever be personally engaged in a role of ministry within the church, this passage is applicable to all of us here this evening for a number of reasons. Well, number one, because all of the Word of God is applicable to you. But more specifically, though the judgment of ministers may have some peculiarities, ministers are not judged on a different plane of righteousness and unrighteousness. Sin is sin, and godliness is godliness, whether you are a minister or not. Furthermore, there are no qualities of a minister that all Christians should not aspire to possess in some sense or another. I would challenge you to read the passages that primarily deal with the pastoral qualifications and the qualifications of a deacon. You can find them in 1 Timothy chapter number 3 and Titus chapter number 1. Read those passages and tell me if there's anything in there that every Christian shouldn't aspire to be and do. And lastly, ministers have no authority uh, in and of themselves, and they are only ministers insofar as they are recognized by the congregation, 
right? So, in other words, what I'm saying to you is that the members of the church must be qualified to call and recognize ministers. Why should a pastor preach on what pastors ought to be to a congregation of people that aren't pastors? Because you need to know what the pastoral qualifications are according to the Word of God because as members of the assembly, it is your job to recognize and call and hold pastors accountable. This means that you must be familiar with the standard that is set in the Word of God for Christian ministers. Do you know why many churches are plagued with awful and terrible pastors? Have you ever met or visited or uh, attended a service and you thought, how in the world does this gentleman find a group of 30, 40, 50 people, sometimes way larger than that, that come week after week to listen to him? And then you take a look at his life and take a look at his doctrine and take a look at his practice and he doesn't add up to you? It's because the members of those churches have no idea what a good pastor looks like according to the word of God. And the people that sit under those pastors are not victims. The people that sit under Joel Osteen every week, the people that sit under Benny Hinn, they're not victims, they are accomplices. They are accomplices. And we do not want to be an accomplice to a heretical teacher or a heretical preacher. That includes anyone who might stand in this pulpit. Therefore, it is incumbent upon all of us, not just ministers, to consider the judgment of God upon ministers of the gospel. I'm going to break this text down in five headings. One heading for each verse. So number one, I want you to see in verse number one, the minister's character. The minister's character. Before we can understand the judgment of a minister, we must first know something of his description of his role within the program of God. If you're going to evaluate an employee, you first need to know what his job description is. How could you know whether or not he's doing a good job? And remember that this passage comes in the midst of a section in which Paul is combating the false notion that the Corinthians had regarding ministers, regarding pastors, regarding preachers. What did the Corinthians do? They exalted these preachers to a position of prominence above that which God had placed them. They paraded them around as party leaders. They said, oh, I'm of Paul. Oh, I'm of Apollos. Oh, I'm of Cephas. And they put them up on this ginormous pedestal that God had never placed them. They did not understand the true purpose of a minister. And I'm not going to re-preach some of the other messages, but I know in previous weeks we have dealt with why God gives gospel preachers. I think I preached a two-part message actually titled Putting Preachers into Perspective there at the beginning of chapter 3. And so Paul will now tell us that ministers, far from being on some different plane, on some different level, far from being in this category of super-Christians, no, they are just as accountable to God as everyone else. They are just as human as everyone else. And so Paul says in verse number 1, he says, let a man... and." In context, let any man, let any man at your church, let any Christian, so account of us. Let a man have this image of us, of us gospel ministers. In the immediate context, Paul is speaking directly of himself 
But this is applicable to any and all ministers in every age. Let a man so account of us. This is how you should view pastors. This is how you should assess those who claim to be ministers of God. Paul will now describe the gospel minister under two headings. It's right here in the text. The first heading defines how he relates to God, and the second heading defines how he relates to man. So he says, let a man so count of us, here's the first one, as of the ministers of Christ, in the second one, and the stewards of the mysteries of God. So you say, what is a minister? Well, it all boils down to him being the minister of Christ and the steward of the mysteries of God. So what what do those two things mean? Well, ministers of Christ. A minister of Christ is a servant of Christ. A servant of Christ who labors under his direct authority. He is directly under the authority of Christ. This is the most quintessential definition of a minister. And you see what I was saying earlier, how this applies not just to ministers, because in reality we understand that all Christians should do everything that they do under the authority of Christ. But ministers especially, in their ecclesiastical and ministerial duties, they labor under the direct authority of Christ. And everything else about a minister, everything else about his responsibilities, everything else about his requirements will fall under this grand heading. He is a servant of Christ. Truly called ministers must never forget that they work for a party of one. The ministers of Christ are not called to be innovators. The ministers of Christ are not called to invent some new doctrine. They are called to speak what Christ speaks and what he has spoken for the last 2,000 years through his church. So many pastors are living under stress and living, living under agitation because they feel as if their job is to find some new way to be relevant or to be trendy. I like what I heard John MacArthur say in an interview a while back when they asked him, because he's been now the pastor of Grace Community Church for over 50 years, and they asked him, what is the secret to his longevity? And he says, well, the secret to my longevity is that I've never said anything new these last 50 years. Everything I've ever preached, every book I've ever written, every sermon, every lesson, it's all been stuff that Christian ministers have been saying for the last 2,000 years. There's safety in church history. Sound doctrine today is sound doctrine a thousand years ago because the word of God doesn't change. And the ministers of Christ are not called to be inventors. They're called to be preachers of the faith once delivered to the saints. For the ministers of Christ, the scope and the bounds of their ministry is fixed and established by his word. They must never go beyond what he has commissioned them to do. They must never fall short of all that he requires of them. As ministers of Christ, they are to keep his interests. They are to keep his cause. They are to keep his kingdom at the forefront of their ambitions. Ministers of Christ must understand that their highest And greatest calling upon this earth is to serve Jesus Christ. And everything else that they are called to do is to be a subset of that grand calling. Now let me say this. In a day in which church authority has fallen by the wayside, let me say this. There are no 
gospel ministers apart from gospel churches. Christ calls his ministers, but he calls them never apart from his church. Never. Christ calls his ministers as they are already faithfully serving him in his church. There has never been and there never will be a self-appointed pastor or a self-appointed deacon or a self-appointed anything. Just because Johnny has a YouTube channel and calls himself an apostle does not mean that he is a genuine minister of the gospel. I'm not saying that Johnny's not saved. I'm not saying that Johnny is necessarily a heretic, though nine times out of ten he is. But the New Testament is, is abundantly clear. The Bible is is emphatic on this issue. There are two offices in the local church. Pastor, which is also called elder or bishop. So when you're reading your New Testament, you see pastor, elder, bishop. It's three words that mean the exact same office. They just highlight different qualities of that office, different functions of that office. And that's another sermon for another day. But there's two offices, pastor and deacon. Not as the the Roman church would tell you that there there is a, a cardinal and a and a pope, and a bishop, and a father, and all of these different things. No, no, no. Pastor, elder, bishop, deacon. And holding one of these two offices requires two calls. Two calls. The first is the inward call of God, which you receive specifically through God laying upon your heart a desire to be involved in the gospel ministry. I believe that's essential. But that inward call must then be confirmed by the outward call of the church. Now, what do I mean by this? I think this is very important. You might consider this a rabbit trail, but I really don't think it is. I think this is applying the text to an issue that is very prevalent in our day. What I mean is this. Here's how God calls his ministers, his pastors and his deacons and his churches. He first lays upon their heart this inward call. He gives them this desire and they feel this desire that is within them. And when God gives the desire, he will also give the determination to prepare, to study, to make sure that the, the requirements, the biblical requirements are met. He will give the gifts, by the way, the gift to preach, the gift of ministry, the gift of encouragement, the gift of consolation. He'll give those gifts. He'll do that individually to that person that he has called. But just because that has happened in that person's life, that does not automatically mean that he is now suddenly in that office until he receives the outward call. And what is the outward call? It is the church recognizing what God has done in this individual and agreeing with what God has done in this individual and acknowledging what God has done in this individual and calling them to that office. Does that make sense to everyone? It is, it is the church that sees what God has done. It is the church that, that recognizes God has sent us a gifted brother. God has sent us a, a, a knowledgeable brother. God has sent us one who is apt to teach. God has sent us one who desires to serve. God has sent us one who, who has these desires and he meets the qualifications. And we as the church, if we are going to be obedient, we must not stifle this brother. We must not say, sit down and shut up. We must say, Exercise the gifts that God has given you. But when those two calls, when one of them are lacking, there can be no holding of a ministerial office. 
And it goes both ways. There are instances where the church might notice a particular individual and think, so-and-so would just be a wonderful elder. So-and-so would just be, they would make a great deacon. But that brother has no desire to hold that office. And so the church need not force responsibilities or force uh, that position upon him. But then the other, which is oftentimes far more painful, is when you have a brother who, who feels that he is called, but according to the standards of the Word of God and according to the testimony of the Spirit working in the church, there is no outward call. There is no confirmation of the church. And God has set it up this way for the safety of his people. God has made it hard to become an elder. Not easy. Because God does not intend for everyone with a Facebook and internet connection to be a pastor. God does not intend for that to be so. God does not intend for Tonto and Lone Ranger to start a devotional channel and propagate what they believe to be the truth out to the masses with no safety. See, the the church is here for safety. Safety. You know, I could not just show up one Lord's Day and just go on a a heresy rampage because there are enough spiritually minded brothers and sisters in this church that would stop me. There's safety in that. And, And there are brothers that that I know I can go to if I have an idea and I'm not sure about it, or if I, if I think I'm seeing something here in the text and I'm not sure about it, and I could bounce it off of them and I can say, what do you think about this? And they can then say, oh, that's foolish. Don't preach that. There's safety in that. There's safety in that. But if anyone titles themselves elder or deacon or pastor or whatever, who claims to have an inward call but has never received this outward call and has never been ordained to that office by the members of his local church, then his office and his ministry is about as legitimate as the office and ministry of the tooth fairy. And I don't say that to be cute. I know that sounds harsh, but I've seen far too many souls destroyed by some phony internet evangelist who's just peddling heresy to millions of people. Now, what I want to tell you is do not give a minute of your time to some false teacher who does not submit to a local assembly that is patterned after the biblical doctrine and practice that we find in the Word of God. Amen. Just don't do it. You know, what, what do we have in common when we reference names like John MacArthur and, and others that we mention that we, that we think highly of, whether it be the, the John MacArthur's or the R.C. Sproul's or the the Steve Lawson's or whoever they may be, what do do those men all have in common? They're church men. They're church men. God has blessed not only MacArthur, but he's blessed Grace Community Church. And John has been accountable to that church for 50 years. But what do we have in common with the the Kenneth Copelands and the Benny Hens? And you could go on and on. There's no local church in the mix. They have some self-titled ministry and they go around doing whatever they want. Filthy lucre's sake. There's no safety in that. That's not how God designed the New Testament ministry to be conducted. So he says that they are ministers of Christ and secondly, they are stewards 
of the mysteries of God. Stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, this might sound confusing, but it's really not. What are the mysteries of God? They are simply those things which can only be known through the divine revelation inscripturated in his written word. That's why they're called mysteries. They're not mysteries because you cannot know them. They're called mysteries because you cannot know them apart from the Bible. That's why they're called mysteries. And the apostles specifically called them mysteries because they were the first ones that revealed them. So they were mysteries before the apostles revealed them. They still are mysteries to those who do not read and understand the word of God. But to you, these mysteries have been revealed. These are mysteries. And this, again, is a raging debate in our day and age as we we see uh, Baptists now rehashing the old Thomas Aquinas Aristotle arguments about classical theism and natural theology. And I want to say to you that there are mysteries, there are things that are essential to know about God, that the gospel cannot be known apart from the word of God. Nature has enough evidence to condemn you, but it does not have enough evidence to birth saving faith into your heart. So you need these mysteries specially revealed by the word of God. A steward is one who manages the household of his master. A steward is one who manages the household of his master. The steward is to care for and protect and dispense the goods of his master on his master's behalf. He is to to handle the business transactions of his master. And Christian ministers are described as stewards whose master is God And what they are entrusted with is something far more precious than silver and gold. The gospel minister is entrusted with the purity of the gospel. And he is to safeguard that gospel. And he is to dispense that gospel. And he is to propagate that gospel. So stewards of the mysteries of God simply means one who has been commissioned under the authority of Christ to preach the word of God. So He relates to God as a servant of Christ, as a minister, but he relates to the people as one who stewards out the mysteries of God. So next time you hear someone talking foolishness about receiving a special word from God or or some kind of mysterious knowledge, you can say to them, well, we hear the mysteries of God every Sunday and every Wednesday that are right here in the Word. Right here in the Word. We preach the mysteries of God. A minister is not responsible for polishing up the gospel. He is not responsible for making it palatable to sinful men. No, he is to preach the raw, the rich, the unadulterated, the high-octane gospel of Jesus Christ without reservation, without excuse, without apology. He is to preach the whole truth and the full counsel of God And that only. And that only. And he has no authority to omit or add to the word of God in any way. If someone stands up and says, thus saith the Lord, the next thing coming out of their mouth better be scripture. Or as Vodibachum likes to put it, the Lord told me is no substitute for the Bible says. Pastors are not called to be political commentators. They're not called to be opinion pontificators. They're not called to be inspirational speakers. 
Pastors must do what the master requires, must go where the master sends, and must say what the master commissions. And a church is blessed when they have men called by God and ordained by the church who faithfully preach the word of God as it is written. So you see, the job then is very hard and very easy at the same time. It's a very simple task. All you have to do is preach the Bible. But once you realize that all you have to do is preach the Bible, you begin to feel like John Knox felt when he said, I tremble every time I step into the pulpit. I I could very easily, very lightheartedly tell you my political opinions or, or tell you how I felt about the Georgia game yesterday very easily tell you that. Why? Because those things don't really matter. My opinions don't matter. But the Word of God is the most important and the most precious, the most valuable, the most indispensable thing I could ever open up before anyone. And so, yeah, you'd say, well, my task is just to preach the Word of God. I only work one hour a week. But what a task that is. What a task that is. Anything short of that or anything added to that is sin and disobedience. If I fail to preach the whole counsel of God, I'm I'm sinning. But if I add to the preaching of the Word of God something that the Word of God does not give me authority to add, I'm disobedient. And this is the criteria upon which a minister will be judged. This is, this is the rubric. This is the character of the minister. This is his job description. Don't you think this is something important for all church members to know? This is not just something pastors should consider. You should consider this. You should consider this as you, as you are looking for a biblical church, as you are thinking about where you will commit to. Is this the type of ministry? Is this the type of character that is behind the pulpit. And I see that I'm not going to be making it through all of these five points. So this will now become a two-parter. And we'll go as far as we can go. And we'll pick up next time I have the privilege of standing before you. So number two. The minister's criteria. We looked at the minister's character. Let's look at the minister's criteria in verse number two. Moreover... It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. It is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. The ministry is not a beauty contest. The ministry is not a popularity competition. Oftentimes, ministers are judged on the basis of their style or on the basis of their delivery, on the basis of their charisma, on the basis of their personality. But none of these things, though they have their importance, none of these things are the proper criteria for a minister's evaluation. There is only one standard by which all ministers will be examined. And that standard is faithfulness. Faithfulness. How faithful was he to the task God gave him. As a minister of Christ, was he faithful to Jesus? As stewards of the mysteries of God, was he 
faithful to those God placed under his ministry. See, success is God's to give. Growth is God's to give. Salvation of sinners is God's to give. Faithfulness is ours to maintain. What am I called to do? I'm called to preach the word of God. No matter who shows up, no matter who doesn't show up, no matter what the response is, I can do no other. What are you called to do? You are called to remain faithful, to serve Christ, to, to be faithful to His church, to be faithful to His word, to be faithful to the means of grace, to be faithful to the spiritual disciplines. No matter what happens in your life, that is what you're called to, faithfulness. Blessings are God's to give. Providence is God's to employ. You must be faithful. The world judges Christians and Christian ministers entirely different than that which they will truly be judged by. Their ideas of success and failure are antithetical to what we as Christians believe true success to be. They value big buildings. They value large congregations. They value sizable followings. They value the subscribers and the followers. They value the generous salaries. But Jesus does not value any of those things. Jesus values faithfulness to the task assigned by the Master. Tell me which of God's prophets in the Old Testament had any of the things I just mentioned. When we assess a minister of Christ, see, we often consider things like, well, how well does he preach? What theological degrees does he hold? How many letters are behind that guy's name? How charismatic is he? How smart is he? But you know, we ought to first ask, how faithful is he to do what God has called him to do? Is he reliable? Is he dependable? Is he trustworthy? Is he consistent? Is he determined? See, that is what constitutes Christian maturity. That is what forges a true gospel minister. I know of a church. The pastor, the current pastor, is a friend of mine. And he's been there for about three years now. And the Lord has really blessed the church under his ministry. He's been a member of that church for the last 15 years. And he was one of those men that had the gifts and had the desire, and the church finally recognized that within him. But they had a very long-standing pastor. He was a very faithful man. That pastor moved away uh, on the foreign mission field. And the church began to look for a new pastor for the church. And they wound up calling a man who had outstanding charisma, who had exuberant theological knowledge, who had outstanding preaching abilities. He was a pulpiteer. He was was a fantastic and phenomenal speaker. He was a very likable guy. He really was. And they saw all of these things about him. and, And the current pastor now told me, he said that, well, when, we, when this guy first came in, and when we first started examining him, we saw some red flags in, in his character. We saw some, some things that concerned us, but he made up for it with his preaching and pastoral abilities. 
And they wound up calling him as their pastor. And not even a year went by before that man fell into serious moral sin and disqualified himself from the ministry. And then a few months later, after that, the church ended up calling the current pastor, who's a friend of mine, and I will tell you this, I I love my brother very dearly, but he's not the most phenomenal preacher I've ever met. He's not the most gifted theologian I've ever met. He's not the most charismatic speaker I've ever heard. Do you know what he is? He's a very faithful man. A very faithful man. And the Lord is blessing his ministry. See? Giftedness and knowledge, ability and skill, those things are all important. They really are. But faithfulness is indispensable. Paul commissioned Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Pastors ought to rejoice when the Lord raises up men in the church who might possibly join them in the gospel ministry. But life is too short to pour yourself out and invest yourself into unfaithful men. I don't say that to be mean or cruel. See, if you want to be used of God, if you want to serve in the church, you must be faithful. Give me a church full of faithful men and faithful women over a church full of know-it-all theologians any day of the week. See, if you want to preach, if you want to teach, we can teach you those things. We can teach you theology. I love theology. I'll be happy to teach you theology. Other men will be happy to teach you theology. We'll teach you homiletics. We'll teach you hermeneutics. We'll teach you how to grammatically break down a verse if that's your desire, if you want to do that. But you know what I can't teach you? can't teach you to be faithful. We can see what faithfulness is according to the Word of God. But I can't teach you to do those things. You must cultivate that. That's why Paul admonished, I believe it was Timothy as well, to lay hands on no man suddenly. What does that mean? Lay hands on no man suddenly. Ordain. Do not ordain any man suddenly. I've had instances where, well, I say instances, I've had an instance a very zealous individual that attended and within two weeks of attending was asking if he could be ordained. Well, there's a number of problems with that. Number one, it shows you have no idea what ordination is, but Paul says, lay hands on no man suddenly, not just to the eldership, but also to the diaconate. It's because the Christian life and the gospel ministry, it is not a series of 100-yard dashes. It is a marathon. And to be successful, you will need true and abiding faithfulness. True and abiding faithfulness. See, any of us, any of us could be faithful 
over a couple of weeks. We're, we're nearing the end of the year. And come January 1st, every Christian on God's green earth will be faithful in their year-long Bible reading plan until about the 17th of January. Can't say amen, just say ouch. But the Christian life is not about how, how quickly we can dash 50 yards. It is not how fast you can get off the starting block that matters with God. It's how you finish that matters with God. And a minister, if he's going to have a ministry that is blessed by God throughout the duration of his life, above all things, above all things, he must learn faithfulness. Now I have a lot more. And I want to give you a lot more. But I'm not going to do that. Because we've already gone for a good amount of time. And uh, I think this is a good natural place to break up the text here. We'll pick up verse number 3 next time we meet together. But I want you to see the seriousness of, of this issue. I want you to see how important this is. This is. Again, as I've said with so many of the things Paul has dealt with, this is not just something that the Corinthians needed in their day. It's not. It's something we need in our day. And I pray, and I hope you pray, and I'm encouraged to see it happening in our day, but I pray that God would increase it and continue it. That God would continue to raise up faithful men that have a desire to know the Word of God and to preach the Word of God. And let me say this to you as well. If you have that desire, that's a, that's a blessing. Do not be ashamed of that desire. Do not, do not feel as if you will not be able to fulfill that desire here. No, no. If you want to serve, we want you to serve. You must be faithful. Amen. We must all be faithful. Because this is not just some game that we're playing. This is the church of the everlasting God. We must do all for His honor and His glory. The Lord Jesus Christ was the most faithful man that ever lived. For 33 and a half years, He exhibited an intense and abiding faithfulness. He was faithful in all things. He was faithful in the little things. And he was faithful in the big things. He was faithful when no one was looking. He was faithful when he was on display to the world. He was faithful as they mocked. He was faithful as they jeered. He was faithful as they despised. He was faithful as he carried his own cross to Calvary. He was faithful as they hung him up, suspended him between heaven and earth. He was faithful as he shed his blood. He was faithful as he died to redeem a people unto himself. He was faithful so that we who are not faithful can be faithful. So may we all strive to have a greater allegiance unto Him, especially those of us who serve, but all of us here tonight. May we strive to be further devoted to Him, further devoted to His cause and His church, that He might be glorified. And if you are here tonight and you do not know Jesus Christ, you will never be faithful. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. You will never know faithfulness. Your life will have no meaning and no direction. You have nothing to be faithful to. You have only unfaithfulness. But Christ stands ready and willing to receive you unto himself. 
to call you into the fellowship of this band of brothers and sisters that he has redeemed with his own blood and to give your life the purpose that you were created to have. May we all serve him and love him, be faithful to him, that he might be honored and glorified in our lives. Let us pray. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name for your goodness to us tonight. We thank you for Jesus Christ and the example that he is to us of what faithfulness looks like. May you help us to be faithful. May you help us to remember that there is coming a day in which you will judge your people and you will especially judge your ministers, those who hold office in the church. May we May we consider these things. May we look at these sobering realities introspectively in our own hearts and examine ourselves. Father, I know that there are those who do not yet hold office in a church, but who sit here tonight desiring that. I pray that you would grant their desire. Give them the gifts. Give them the calling. Give them the equipping. Give them the determination. And Lord, help us as a church to love people like that, to cultivate people like that, to be a blessing and not a hindrance. Father, we love you because you have first loved us. We are excited for what you'll do in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.